0: Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC. Normally, each month we have a conversation with an expert in the field of identity and data protection, cybersecurity, or privacy. This month, we're featuring a presentation from a Government Identity Fraud Conference hosted by the ITRC and supported by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. The theme of the conference was Identivation, a combination of identity and innovation, a reflection of how we create, manage, and verify identities that requires us to constantly innovate to protect our identities from criminals and other threat actors. In this episode of the Fraudian Slip, we're going to share a presentation from Linda Miller a former senior executive with the Public Response Accountability Committee, or PRAC, and now founder and CEO of the Audient Group. Linda shared with the attendees the current and emerging trends in identity fraud. Now, in your program, it says Linda Miller and former director of PRAC or something like that. But as of a few days ago, Linda has her own company now. So we'll let Linda tell you about that. Along with what are emerging trends, as she sees it, in the commercial marketplace and in other places. So, come on, Linda.
1: This is, yeah, thank Thanks, Evan. So yes, I'm speaking to you today for the first time as a CEO of my new company, Audience Group. So um, you get, you're my inaugural audience of being, a, being an entrepreneur, and it's Women's History Month. So for all the women out there, I think. It's yeah. Um, <laughs> this, this session, I only have 30 minutes of 29 minutes and 46 seconds. And, uh, and I, um, it is a little, almost like a part two of what Matt just talked about, because we're going to be talking about some similar themes. Hopefully, um, I'm, I'm going to be hitting on some different ideas. My background is, though, I did spend a year um, as a deputy executive director of the PRAC earlier today when Gene Sperling was giving his remarks. He mentioned these, um, I think he called them gold standard meetings um, that we did on Fridays. And I was in those meetings with, with him and Mike Horowitz and the other members of the leadership of the Prac and the White House working on you know essentially trying to, to oversee the $5 trillion in pandemic spending. So I, I spent a year there. I also spent 10 years at GAO. And when I was at GAO, I led the development of the GAO framework for managing fraud risks in federal programs and then worked on the COSO task force that developed... Um, the Fraud Risk Management Guide that governs the commercial sector. Spent six years as a partner at Grant Thornton, um, led the fraud and financial crimes practice there. And now I'm uh, working on my my own gig. So happy to be here with you today and thanks to LexisNexis and to the ITRC for inviting me to speak. So today we're gonna talk about emerging trends in identity theft-based fraud. And again, some some of the themes that Matt was just discussing, I'm gonna hit on in a slightly different way. Um, so basically, the way that we're seeing the, the trends where we're going, there's kind of two key issues to think about. Artificial intelligence, already been talking a bit about ChatGPT GPT today. I'm going to mention a little bit more about chat GPT. And then this notion of the fraud as a service market. And what we really saw during the pandemic was a lot of um, new entrants into the fraud market. So before, you were pretty established as a fraud actor. You'd been doing this a while. Maybe you were a sophisticated member of a, a criminal ring or, um, or you had you know, an a- access to these kinds of tools. What we saw though during the pandemic is a lot of people learned the tools of committing fraud and those tools became much, much easier um, to, to access. And so you could take your average person who could then become basically a fraudster and we saw this happening on a, on a huge scale. And so we saw a really, really large increase in I would, what I would consider to be sort of like the, the more small scale um, fraudsters. So you kind of see these big nation state criminal enterprises that we saw, you know, um, having obviously a huge impact on a lot of the uh, unemployment assistance fraud and the PPP fraud in the pandemic. But we also are seeing a lot more of these kind of smaller actors engaging in these markets that have been created for them on the deep and dark web. So the first trend, um, Matt talked about sim swapping. There are a couple ways that you can do sim swapping, but how many of you guys have heard of of the telecom network SS7? So that's, that's, SS. it's kind of obscure, but it's basically the telecommunications platform that we use today. Um, it, was a st- it was built in 1988 and it's still used today. It's what, it's what routes our phone calls and our SMS text messages. It was built in 1988 which means it was built before encryption. And so no SMS and no phone calls are encrypted. We now have encrypted technology, things like WhatsApp, but your typical phone SMS is not encrypted. And so the There's a couple of ways that that sim swapping happens, but what we're seeing right now is a a trend to these new markets on the deep and dark web. And one in particular is called simswap.su. And this is a sophisticated fraudster has figured out how to to really exploit that vulnerability around encryption. And so they can actually sim swap remotely. So there's kind of two ways typically he talked about, Matt talked about how you you can call in and get someone's information using information you've stolen from the dark web and try to get the phone company to change your SIM card. You can, they're also buying off an awful lot of people who work at the T-Mobile and AT&T stores to do it physically in, the, in your phones when you're, getting, um, when you're buying a new phone. But there's this new ability now for as little as $250 for a one-day trial, a fraud actor with limited skills can actually just swap anyone's phone remotely. So Woody mentioned earlier that he inadvertently put his phone number on Twitter because he's a novice Twitter user. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, Woody's the CEO of LexisNexis government. People might know that Woody's pretty senior. He's a high profile person. Now they've got his phone number. They can buy $250 a day pass using this tool and they can spoof Woody's phone. And then they can send text messages to everybody in Woody's contacts. They can change all of Woody's passwords to all of his websites. They can do this for $250. And they can do this for anybody whose phone numbers that they have. And obviously they'd be looking for high high target phone numbers. So this is a new use. Now the problem here is the vulnerability in the SS7 t- telecom protocol, which is known, and but it's been known now for years, and they haven't yet fixed it. And so this concept of, you know, he talked about, Matt talked about, not using one-time passwords, using SMS. SMS is really not a safe um, way to, to use more secure tools like one-time passwords. So we're trying, to, we're trying to use tools that don't use SMS, but this is an example of an enterprising fraud actor being able to exploit these kinds of vulnerabilities, and, and they're able to do an enormous amount of damage with that. Trend two, chat bots. So we've talked about chat GPT. We've talked about GPT-4, Eva even read uh, something that was written by ChatGPT. What we're seeing with the, with the, with the ability for chatbots to to improve how phishing is done is typically, as many of us have gotten phishing emails, and we know, we can kind of tell they're not, they're not legitimate, right, they've got, they've got grammatical errors, they're not written in, 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 in very well, in very good English, so we can kind of immediately spot them. But ChatGPT can solve that. They can write much more grammatically correct emails in these phishing emails. And they can also, the other, one of the other tools is that most companies have the ability to um, identify where you have a lot of the same emails, right? Because they'll spam it. They'll send out the same phishing email to, to you know, 100,000 employees in a, in a company and the software will totally pick it up. Those are, those are, ver- those are the same and they'll, they'll catch it, they'll flag it. But now ChatGPT can make it so that you're, uh, you can change that up. You can, you, can, you, you can make that language unique so it doesn't get caught by those software tools. And so now these phishing campaigns are going to be far more um, effective. But we're also seeing, so we're seeing that they're able to improve code. We're already seeing that they're working on, the ChatGPT is actually improving the code in malware. So they're making their malware better using AI. Um, Their Telegram bots are actually able to expose OpenAI's APIs, and and OpenAI hasn't been able to get around that, and so they're able to actually use their own APIs. Um, And then, obviously, they're they're automating these spear phishing campaigns, things like CEO um, scams and things like that. So this is an example of a ChatGPT-generated phishing email. So it's pretty easy, right? Go into ChatGPT, write a phishing email that appears to come from a a fictional web hosting services host for you, and there it is. It gives the the full email. And you you can add those prompts. You can change those prompts in GPT to ask it to make slight variations in those phishing emails and it will, it will do that for you. But I think what's even more troubling actually is what we're seeing is that they're, they're able to create these email chains. And so before the advent of ChatGPT, the only uh, fraudsters that were using these, this kind of sophisticated email chain phishing were mostly more sophisticated international rings, but now you can ask ChatGPT and I've put in this email to try to make because it's so much text, I've tried to highlight the, the important things to look at here in the yellow. You can ask it to write an email you know, that describes what you want it to say and then write a reply to that email, explain what you want that reply to say, and then write another reply to that. And you can see it saying from person A to person B or person one to person two, you're inserting these people's names. And it's generating an entire believable email string of people who you work with in your own organization so that when that email comes to you, it do, it looks extremely legitimate because these are people you work with and it looks like there's been this long chain where they're telling you that this is the things that you need to do and you're seeing it for the first time but you're seeing that your colleagues have been responding to and involved in this conversation and it's very real. It sounds very legitimate. and so. This this actually is pretty novel this this ability to use ChatGPT to do this and one of the challenges is that people are as you, you've probably been hearing if you're reading about um, you know the new AI and and uses of of ChatGPT people are going to be using ChatGPT to write emails legitimate emails that's something we're being encouraged to do right it's going to make our lives easier just I mean Eva used it to write her opening remarks and so it's going to be harder and harder because if you, you know if you want to try to let me see if I can find this email was written by ChatGPT, well most people's emails soon are going to be written by ChatGPT. And the other thing that they're able to do is they can they can mimic this the writing style of a certain person. So you can actually take a series of emails from somebody and put it into ChatGPT and say, write an email in this style. And so if you know, if you work really closely with your boss or your colleague and you kind of know their style of writing, ChatGPT is going to be able to make your email sound very similar to that, that you are already familiar with their, uh, with their style. And so these kinds of tools are going to really make it difficult because I think social engineering is really seriously, that's the hardest thing for us to be able to address. Right now in the fraud space, um, people click on the links. You know They feel bad when they realize, but they click on the links. The, cl- the links look real, and now they're gonna look more real. And that's gonna be a real problem because it's gonna be very difficult to make a determination about whether an email is real or a link is real, when you've got this AI tool um, that the fraudsters are able to, to um, exploit. So this is, this, this, this is a game changer. For the, in the fraud world in this next year, we're gonna see this really, really changing um, how, we, how we think about fraud. The third trend I wanna talk about is, um, is malware, and in particular, InfoStealer malware. How many people have heard of InfoStealer malware? Okay, a couple. Um, So, info stealer malware, as as the name implies, is uh, is malware that is designed to steal information. Typically when your credentials get um, compromised, let's say you were in a breach and they found your email and your password and then you were alerted maybe that your email was in a breach and you should change your password, and you change your password and you're pretty much set, right, because they were using the email address and the password. And you've changed the password, and so you're no longer uh, at risk. The, the way that they're using these, these info, info stealer malwares today, they're Trojans that go onto your computer and they're picking up your keystrokes. So when you find out that you've been compromised and you go to change your email, you go to change your password, they've got your new password. They're keeping the information. Until you get the malware off of your machine, it's watching everything that you're doing. And so what we're seeing with these. Malware is that for one thing now they're becoming malware as a service. So there's these, these great enterprising fraud companies that are offering these tools for very cheap. They're, you know, like you can basically just lease them for a fee. There's a lot, there's customer service, they'll help you. If you have a problem using it, you can call in and the bad guys will help you make sure you're using the malware correctly. Um, so it's you know, it's a whole, I mean, what's really important to recognize here is that this is a new market, this is a business this is fraud inc this is these people have created really sophisticated markets not just in the deep web also in the dark or not just in the dark web also in the deep web telegram is you know full of these kinds of sites and there's i mean they've got you know it's just like any other type of business you can you can rate them you know buy a one-time password bot did a great job really allowed me to steal a lot of information i give it 5 stars and so you know, you're able to like, find the right you know, vendors that you want for your, for your fraud tools. And so it's a, it, this really has changed what we're kind of the world that we live in. So these InfoStealer malware have gotten really popular. There was one in particular called Raccoon. It was um, taken down by the FBI last April. They had it back up version two by May. Um, version two was so popular, it's now the most used info stealer out there hasn't been taken down yet, and so an example of how this works is: uh, let's say Woody is a guy who likes to look at funny videos, and he f- there, someone sends him an app for this funny video app. He can download this app, and there's going to be like funny cat videos, and you know whatever hedgehogs eating bananas or whatever the thing is that you look at on TikTok. And so he downloads the app, and it says it asks him to you know a- approve some permissions, and he says yes because we all do that. Right, First thing you have to do when you want to, you know, yes, permissions. And so now he's got the app and there are some funny videos. So it seems like it was a pretty good decision. He's happy with his app, his funny video app. But what it's really doing is waiting for him to log into his bank. And when he logs into his bank, it's going to go and look through its database of banking apps and it's going to put a fake app on top of his banking app. So it looks like his banking app, but it's not. It's, th- it's a fake banking app. He puts his information in it stealer is, is, is capturing all the information that he's putting into the bank account, It waits for him to finish his bank with his bank, it goes back in and it relogs into his bank using the information it just stole. And then it's even gonna send him an SMS to say, you know, you just made, you made a transfer, but it's gonna be able to intercept that SMS because when he accepted those permissions, it gave him permission to do that. And so he isn't even ever gonna see that SMS. And so then it's gonna be able to transfer his money. Out of his bank account, and he doesn't know it's on his phone. He doesn't know it's on his device, and so these these info stealer malware um, is incredibly popular right now. This is one of the most popular tools that fraud actors are using, and we're seeing um, that they're they're being incredibly successful. And what, but it's what really I think the important part is lowering the barrier to entry, right? And so it used to be you you had to be somewhat sophisticated to do this stuff. Nowadays, honestly, you really I mean. You know just about anybody can go learn how to do these tools like matt was talking about there's there 's kits there 's how to guides right, and then you 've got these software as a service tools on the dark web that are allowing ent- these enterprising criminals to be able to use these tools and so the concern I think for the for those of us in the room and for those of us that do fraud fighting as a business is a job is. We have to think about this adversary in an entirely different way. I think we used to think about it as a certain set of people with a certain set of skills. We weren't thinking about it as anybody could enter this business, basically this business of being of, of defrauding people. And that's the world we live in now. And it's really important that we that we start adjusting the way we think about these adversaries, especially government agencies, who I just don't think are prepared in many ways for a lot of these more sophisticated tools. I mean, some, of these, some government agencies are really excited that they have finally implemented one-time passwords. And they're like, we have one-time passwords now, so we're good. You know, and even this discussion about biometrics and, and document authentication, the document authentication tools that they have out there right now, the, counterfeit, the ability to develop incredibly accurate, authentic-looking counterfeit documents cannot be underestimated. Those document authentication tools are very easy to evade. they're making really, really, really good counterfeit documents. And so saying, oh, we've got a document authenticator or we're using, you know, one time passwords. And so we're good. The problem is that I just don't think that most people realize how easy it is for these really, really sophisticated fraud actors to overcome these tools. And especially because they have the access to AI just like we do. And one of the important things I think about the fraud world, fraud inc. versus you know where we live the, the, on the on the on the right side of the, um, the, the you know the non bad the, the the good side. In our in our world, especially in government, you want to put in a new tool. It's going to be complicated. You're going to have to put out some sort of procurement. You know, you're going to have to evaluate your vendors you're going to put it in place going to take some time you're going to you know get everybody trained up on the tool and then you know when the tool is becomes obsolete that's now I got to go do the whole thing over again right and where these guys are flexible right they'll try something if it doesn't work they'll just pivot they don't they don't need to go through any bureaucracy they don't have to you know they don't have to compete something and make sure that you know they get a certain number of vendors that compete so they have a significant advantage they, if, if, like this raccoon malware that went out of business and spun back up in you know, six weeks. They can just start it, start it back up again. And so understanding that the, the playing fields are not even right now. These guys have the upper hand, they've got, they're more nimble, they can move more quickly. But they're using the same tools we are, they're using AI too, right? And so they've got the ability to scale quickly. They can fail something doesn't work, they can just scrap it and try something new. And so this is, the, this is the adversary that we're fighting right now. It's really important to recognize. So, I mean, you know, we all know the clicking is the, is the biggest issue, the, the clicking on links. Is, social engineering is gonna, I think, continue to be the biggest issue here. Making sure updates are installed. They're really taking advantage of any kind of vulnerabilities in software. And so much of these, especially breaches, we see because people didn't install a patch. This happens all the time, didn't install a patch and they they, they steal a bunch of information off your system. So installing quickly, installing updates is super important. And even even though they can get around multi-factor authentication, it's better than nothing, so if you're not using that. And then never use pirated software is another kind of tool with that one. The next trend I wanna talk about is um, these new MFA, so MFA, multi-factor authentication. Again, a lot of people are like, oh, well, we've got multi-factor authentication, so we're okay. So they're coming up with new ways to use multi-factor authentication or to get around multi-factor authentication that are really quite um, ingenious. And so the most recent one that we're seeing is this concept of MFA fatigue. How many of you guys have heard of this new attack vector, MFA fatigue? So this is this, is this big right now. Um, so what these guys are doing is they are getting a stolen credential and then they, when, they, when there's a um, set, that you get the request to approve through the SMS um, they are sending them over and over and over and over and over again until the person just finally accepts it. So that's why it's called MFA fatigue. Um, and so they're bombarding them with these, with these requests. And, uh, and th- this, is, this is actually one of the most popular MFA um, circumvention tools that's being used right now. And there's a couple of screenshots I have of some of the threat actors. One guy was so proud that he actually put this on Twitter. He, he proudly boasted on Twitter how he did it. And so this was an Uber attack. Um, and so the hacker went onto Twitter to describe that he was spamming an employee with a push off for over an hour. And then he contacted him on WhatsApp claiming to be from the Uber IT and told him that if he wants it to stop, he has to accept it. So he did that and then he took it. So he's obviously he's, he's posing as a, an Uber um, IT person. And that seems reasonable, right? To the person who's getting these. The other one I thought was even a little bit more diabolical. This guy said, um, you know, you can, it'll issue an MFA through a phone call, but there's no limits. So if you call the employee 100 times at 1 a.m. while they're trying to sleep, then they'll go ahead and accept it. And so that's what they're doing now. So this is a new attack vector, something we haven't seen until probably the last three or four months, but we're seeing a lot more of it now. And it's just another example of how uh, these guys are getting creative about ways to get around things like multi-factor authentication. And, and they, they aren't going to stop coming up with new ways. You know, once this becomes obsolete, they will have the next way that they're going to be circumventing MFA, um, you know, within days. They're probably working on it now. They, you know, the next, the next way that they're going to get around it is, is in the works right now. And then the final trend I wanna talk about is these comp- compromised credential marketplaces. So um, th- th- it, all, it all comes down to the data that they're able to steal and they steal the data from a number of ways. We, Matt was talking about obviously there's breaches, right? We see tons of breaches and when they, the bre- when they get the breaches, they have to go through, they curate the data, they look at what's valuable, they get rid of what's not and then they offer it up for sale in these marketplaces and these marketplaces are now getting very consolidated so they've got um, these they've, they've got specific go-to certain marketplaces, and they have, of course, they have some of them are more, um, they get, their credibility is higher because their data is really good, right? These guys are talking to each other regularly and saying, this database was, was good, I bought this and I was able to use this successfully, you know, they call it fulls, you know, full details, and if they can get all the full details and they um, are able to successfully use those, then that data becomes more valuable. Obviously there's a limit though, right? Once the data has, is known to have been exfiltrated and the organization has taken some action, uh, the data has a time limit, so you want it to be really fresh. And so good fresh data that includes a lot of data elements in it is very highly valuable. So what we're now starting to see is like a segmentation of the market. So where they know that some data is more valuable than other data, so now they're starting to charge a premium for the higher um, fidelity, more valuable data. And so an example is, uh, so this is the Russian market is one that's a, that's a highly um, valuable one on the dark web. Um, for anybody that does work and the investigators in the room, you may be familiar with um, the Russian market. And if you can see on the screen, you can see actually that um, a few of those data sources, I think you can actually um, see that they'll, they'll put the source of what the what the type of info stealer it was if they used an info stealer, the operate operating system. And then as you see on the right hand side it says logs and it says pre-order my orders. So the pre-order button is where you can buy for a higher price higher valuable, higher, higher value data. And so now they've, you know, so you can, it's gonna cost you more. And sometimes what's happening is they're creating these one-on-one relationships with each other where they trust there's a trusted relationship where the, some seller will create a relationship, like a business relationship, kind of like a teaming agreement with a bad guy who's like, I want to get your data and I want to pay a premium to you for you to only give, sell it to me because I know your data is really good. And so then it becomes sort of hierarchical in the bad guy world where they're able to, who's got the best data and how much money can they, can they sell that data for. And so this is actually new, these, these, these credential marketplaces are somewhat new because they've now really been able to consolidate the data. It used to be that you had to kind of trawl the dark web to find data, and now it's all consolidated in, in, these, in these marketplaces, in these data marketplaces. And as you can see, there's a variety of search fields. So you can choose the type of data that you want to buy. I want to buy you know, uh, information on, I want women you know from these four states between this age and this age and I want to make sure I've got bank account information and social security information because you, you're doing you're planning a certain type of attack you know against a certain type of uh, victim so you, you, you can you can curate the kind of data you want to buy and these marketplaces are making it really easy and user friendly for the for the threat actors to be able to buy the data they want and again because they're able to um, communicate with each other about how how valuable it is. Kind of like, a, you know, you get some, like a Yelp score or an Uber rating. Some of these guys, you know, they're known for having better data and so they're gonna be able to sell at a premium and you can be confident if you buy that data, that stolen data, that you're gonna be able to perpetrate your fraud more effectively. And uh, you can leave ratings, you know, you can like, you know, score them. And so it's, it's, it's all very, um, it's, it's, it's been set up just like a regular, like legitimate business. And uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that this world that we live in now is not the same as the world that we've lived in even five years ago. Before the pandemic, we didn't see this, this level of organization and this level of sophistication in these threat actors. And it's only gonna continue, especially with AI. I mean, we're talking about how's AI gonna change our worlds. It's gonna change their worlds too. And obviously that's gonna impact us a lot. And we're gonna have to start, especially government is gonna have to start getting a lot smarter on this stuff. You know, I was at a, com- a CIO conference um, in fraud a couple weeks ago, and they had a panel, some members of different agencies, and they were talking about how they, the really the cutting edge that they were really going to try to move to, you know, was was they were going to put in multi-factor authentication across all their tools. And this and this was the CIO conference. This is chief information officer. These are, this is like you know the top, uh, you know, sort of tech people in government, in the fraud space. And they really, truly thought that if they got knowledge based off, or if they got to MFA, they went from KBA to MFA or one time passwords, that this was gonna be the solution. And this worried me a lot when I heard that, because you know, this, we, can't, we can't be there. <laughs> we have to be further along in understanding the sophistication of this adversary, because we're not gonna be able to fight this adversary if we don't understand just how sophisticated they are. And so um, I have two minutes left if there's any questions. Um, and, uh, and you can always reach out to me if you Throw
0: have any. the text. Uh, in the meantime, while we're waiting for one to come in, you mentioned that you know, uh, fresh data is more valuable data, it's more usable. That's very different than what we've all been told and raised on in this, in this space, was people would, uh, would steal data through a data breach, they would sit on it for a long time, because you, you never really knew when they were gonna use it. H- has that changed? And if it has, then what, how should we think about when a data breach occurs, what the remediation should be?
1: Yes, it's changed. I mean, they're using the data immediately. They're trying to figure out how quickly they can use these data elements, because, because, we, because they know that we're also getting better at, especially in the private sector, of, of identifying data breaches quicker and taking action to get people to do things like change their passwords. And so, yeah, they are trying, they recognize that there's a real limit to how long they can, they can hold on to this data before they can use it. And how should we remediate? I mean, you know, honestly, the cyber hygiene piece is so important. I was, you know, recently, recently someone was saying that their company was doing one of those phishing um, tests and they did it on a Monday morning at like 7.30. And the reason was a lot of people in, on a Monday morning at 7.30 are like getting up. It's the first day of the week. Maybe they're trying to get their kids ready for school, you know, they're trying to get themselves in the game, trying to get ready to get out the door, but they're going to check their email, right? Just, just catch up what's going on. They check their email and they see it and they're not reading it really closely because it's, they've got 18 things going on so they click the link. That, they, like, something like three times as many people failed that phishing test. Because they were rushing, right? And so they're getting good. I mean, that, a fraudster knows that too. Let's send that phishing, let's send that phishing email out at 7:30 on Monday morning. We're probably going to get more people. We really have to get people to learn uh, to pay much closer attention to these emails, because again, they're going to get better and better, and we're going to it's going to be harder and harder for, for for even pretty sophisticated people to be able to to judge what's real and what's not real. Um.
0: Well, actually, there's two, one, one question, one statement. So uh, there's Linda's contact information back up on the screen. And we'll leave that up during the break in, in case you need longer to write it down. But here's the last question. Where is the ROI for an adversary in trying to overcome various security tools like MFA? Where are they making their money?
1: Where are they making money?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, they're stealing all this money. I mean, that SIM swapping thing we talked about earlier that Matt talked about, the, the the financial loss from SIM swapping went from 12 million between 2008 and 2020 to 68 million in 2021 alone. They're making money from from stealing people's money out of their bank accounts, um, you know, from, from a variety of financial gain that they're able to do. These these are very lucrative um, attacks. That's why they're doing them.
0: Thanks to Linda Miller for sharing her insights, and thanks to Woody Talcove and LexisNexis Risk Solutions for their support to bring focus to the impacts of identity fraud on victims. If you want to learn more about how the crimes and compromises that impact your identity, privacy, or security, visit our website at idtheftcenter.org. Join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown, and we'll be back next month with another episode of The Fraudian Slip. Thanks for listening.